Turning now to passages in Hebrews, one from Leviticus. Please follow along. We are reading God's word. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel." Speaking again of Jesus, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we stand in your presence. We thank you for your word that instructs us and gives us eternal life. We thank you for Tom, and we pray that the Spirit would work through his words to our hearts and enlighten us and draw us closer to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign in all things, and we are praising you and thanking you before your kingdom and throne, for it's in our Savior's name, our great high priest's name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. We're in uh, message five in our series on the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament, and this particular message uh, is going to demand that we Pay close attention and, and use our, our brains a little bit. Uh, the word demands of us that we, that we apply our minds to the things of the Lord, but this is a, a little bit different in that while we will see specific passages in the Old Testament that directly point to a coming high priest who is Christ, I believe the most compelling demonstration from the Old Testament that there would have to be a better priest and a better priesthood is the failure of the priesthood in the Old Testament. And in fact, we'll see that the writer of Hebrews goes exactly there to make the case in the New Testament regarding the Old. Now, I want to show you kind of where we're headed this morning. We are going to see a couple of things. First, the priest's assignment from God what it is that they were supposed to do. Then we're going to see the priest's inability to do that assignment. And we're going to find out that that inability was by design. And then we're going to see that there was a promised priest who came and who perfectly fulfills the priestly 
assignment. To begin with, let's talk about what the priests were to do. What was a priest for? <laughs> well, there were a couple of things that are that are the big picture things, and that is they were to oversee or administer the people's way of access to God. And then secondly, they were to mediate between God and men. And in that mediation, they represented God to men, and they represented men to God. The very heart of the priest's assignment was to administer all that God said was necessary for His people to come and meet with God Himself, to draw near to His presence. In the instructions for the continual burnt offering in Exodus chapter 29, you see the idea of meeting, of God meeting with His people, and it absolutely pervades this, this passage says, it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before Yahweh, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. And I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. And I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The focus in the first half of that brief passage is on God meeting with His people. The focus in the second half is God's intention to dwell with His people in their midst. Now I've said before that the central promise in the whole Bible from cover to cover is that God will one day dwell in the midst of the people that He has redeemed and made His own. People that He has made fit for His presence and for His kingdom. That's that's the fundamental promise of the Scriptures from start to finish. And God's entire plan of redemption from from the beginning of the Bible to the end points to that end point. When God Himself commanded that a tabernacle be constructed in Exodus 25, and He gave the design of that tabernacle and that priesthood and the sacrifices to Moses, everything about the tabernacle pointed to the eventual fulfillment of this great promise. God dwelling in the midst of His people, meeting with them, being in fellowship with them. But please, beloved, please hear this next part because it is critically important. The earthly tabernacle was intended by God to fail as a way of access for the people to meet with God. It was intended to fail. See, there was a huge, monstrous problem with all of this that God knew before the foundation of of the ages. God knew (laughs) that He is, was, and always will be perfectly holy, and people aren't. From the Garden of Eden on, we have all borne the nature of Adam. We are all fallen and sinful and unclean and unfit to dwell in the presence of a perfectly holy God. And so everything about this earthly, temporary way of access to God called the tabernacle worship 
was loaded with obstacles, with barriers, with things that separated men from God. And those many obstacles were all by God's design. They served as a a continual reminder of the vast difference between the perfectly holy God and the very, very unholy people in whose midst He intends to dwell. So something has to be fixed. The glory of God had taken up residence in the Holy of Holies in the innermost chamber of the tent called the tabernacle. And that that particular room was called the Holy of Holies. But there was a rigorously enforced distance, a separation that kept the people from from the presence of God. And the closer the people came to the presence of God, the more rigorous the obstacles became. And right in the middle of this impossible dilemma were the priests. The priests (laughs) were charged with acting on God's behalf in His dealings with the people and of acting on the people's behalf in their dealings with God. Now, the priest's task was to administer this way of access that had all kinds of obstacles in it. And then it was in the midst of that, as I said, to represent the people to God and God to the people. When I use the word represent, what I mean is stand in the place of. Stand in the place of. The Old Testament high priest who was able to get closest to the presence of God wore on his chest a breastplate that had 12 precious stones on it representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So when he performed his priestly duties and drew near to the presence of God, it was as if it was as if the whole nation was there with him. He represented them. He was He was acting in their place. At the same time, he also stood in the place of the people. When the priest received a sacrificial animal from the hands of an Israelite, he was receiving that animal on God's behalf. It was God's sacrifice. When the priest declared a person ceremonially clean and able to participate in the tabernacle worship, He was allowing that participation on God's behalf. He was standing in the place of God. So with that job assignment in mind, it shouldn't be any big surprise to us that God demanded an exceedingly high standard of behavior from the priests. At Leviticus 21, verse 6, God said, the priests shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the bread of their God, so they shall be holy. Exodus 28 says that the priest had a turban on his head, and on that turban was a pure gold plaque, and on that plaque were the words, holy to Yahweh. Before they presented any of the offerings on the altar, the priests were required to ceremonially cleanse themselves by washing their hands and their feet in consecrated water from the laver, from a basin that stood between the altar of burnt offering and the the tent in which the glory of God dwelled. This kind of came up in our worship this morning, but a Levitical priest could not touch a dead person's body at any time except for his 
immediate relatives. And the high priest, he could not only not touch a dead body, but he couldn't even touch the dead body of his own father or mother. The high priest had to be that set apart from death. And and we talked this morning about a priest who, when he touches uncleanness, he makes it clean. We talked about a priest who, when he touches a dead body, brings it to life. Any man from the priestly line who was blind or lame or had a skin disease or any kind of deformity or even a broken hand or a broken foot could not perform the priestly duties at the tabernacle. I'm going to read a few verses from the chapter that says all that, Leviticus 21. And I want you to listen as I read this. I want you to listen for the reason that God imposed these strict prohibitions on the men that He had appointed to act as mediators between Him and His people. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect. And here's the reason. That he may not profane my sanctuaries, my holy places, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who sanctifies the people of Israel. See, if the defilement of the people ever actually touched God, there would be no holiness anywhere. Now that could not happen, and that was spoken of this morning in the worship. Sinners can't make God unholy. It's never going to happen. And when Jesus was actually in our midst, He turned the unclean clean. But, but in the tabernacle, long before that, in the tabernacle, God was making a point. And His point was, if they could, they would. If Israel had been capable of defiling the presence of God, they absolutely would have. And there were remind, there was reminder after reminder after reminder of that simple reality. The tabernacle and later the temple were earthly pictures of God dwelling in the midst of His people, but God is perfectly holy. He is forever untouched by our sin and by the curse of our sin, which is death and decay and mold and mildew and shedding of blood and bacteria, and viruses. Everything that He imposed on creation because of our sin, He is untouched by it. And He must be untouched by it. And so the whole book of Leviticus, guys, which is my favorite book to teach, the whole book of Leviticus is a stark contrast between, on the one hand, a perfectly holy, uncommon, set-apart God who has nothing to do with the things that are wrong in creation. He has nothing to do with sin or with the curse of sin. He's untouched by it. And on the other hand, men who have everything to do with death and decay and corruption and the curse because they're all sinners. The distinction between the common and the uncommon is the very heart of the book of Leviticus. And, and it's a marvelous way to get familiar with, with the, the starkness of the contrast between unholiness and holiness. And right in the middle of that stark contrast <laughs> were the priests. Charged to do something that they were utterly unqualified to do. They were supposed to administer sacrifices that would cleanse those who had been rendered unclean so that those people could draw near to God. They were 
to administer sacrifices that would atone for the sins of sinners so that those people could draw near to their God. And in the process of doing so, they were to act as both escorts and guardians. Two tasks that kind of bumped into each other. They were to invite people to draw near to the presence of God while at the same time they were to guard the holy presence of God from the defilements of the people. And so they were charged with rigorously enforcing a separation because the people were sinners and the problem with the whole, with that whole scheme with the priests, the whole layout with the priests is that they were sinners too. The priests were unable to do what they had been commissioned to do. And guys, that was by design. Because through all of this, God is pointing to a greater priesthood and a perfect priest. They were unworthy mediators offering up insufficient sacrifices. I'm going to read a portion of God's instructions to the priest concerning the Day of Atonement ceremony recorded in Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement was the one and only day each year when only one man could step into the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the, of the tabernacle and later of the temple in which the, the glory of God dwelled in the midst of His people. If you ever hear the, ter- the term Shekinah glory, that's... That's a term coined outside of the Bible, but Shekinah just means dwelling. It's God, it's the glory of God's dwelling in his, in his, the midst of his people. One man could enter into the Holy of Holies one time each year into the room where the Ark of the Covenant rested, on top of which was the solid gold mercy seat with the cherubim on top of it. And above that was the glory of God. The, the mercy seat was really like the footstool of God because God dwelled above it. The glory of God dwelled above it. But first, before the priest, the high priest, could come in within the veil into the Holy of Holies, Levitic, Leviticus 16 says that he had to slay a bull as a sin offering for himself. And then he was to come in and sprinkle some of the blood of that bull on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And then he was to slaughter a goat as a sin offering for the people. And once again, to bring the blood in and sprinkle it on the holy objects. As he was doing all this, he was instructed to have a fire pan. He was required to have a fire pan in front of him that was full of coals from the altar of incense so that the smoke of the incense would go up in front of his face and obscure his view of the glory of God because if it didn't, if he if he happened to get a full-on view of the glory of God, he would drop dead. And I know you guys have heard heard this all before, but but just think about this. This was not the fullness of the glory of God. This was an earthly representation of the glory of God. It was it, it was just a picture, but he still would die if he looked at it. Now listen carefully as I read verses 16 through 19 of this passage about the Day of Atonement because these verses explain what the blood that was sprinkled was supposed to accomplish. And it's important. It says, And he, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. 
When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for the assembly of Israel. So for himself, the high priest, for the rest of the priesthood, and for all the people of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides and with his fingers sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it. And from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. So guys, what was being cleansed from what? Everything associated with the holy presence of God was being cleansed from the impurities inflicted upon it by the people in whose midst He dwelled. We think of the Day of Atonement as being all about the sins of the people being atoned for. And that element is very strongly in the passage. The scapegoat pictures what happens with the removal of the sins of the people. But at the very heart of the Day of Atonement ceremony is the cleansing of God's dwelling place from the infection and impurity and corruption and decay that the people had inflicted on it. Including the priests. Including the high priest. Now how often did the Day of Atonement sacrifice have to occur? It was once a year. Why is that important? Well, it means it wasn't finished. It wasn't finished. There is a sacrifice that was finished. There's one sacrifice that was finished. See, the sacrifices that were, that were in theory or on paper designed to cleanse people so they could draw near to God didn't and couldn't. They were very temporary. And they were a picture. They were not the substance. They were a picture. They were not the substance. The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, was not given to make men righteous. Many people think it was. It was not. It was given to prove to men that they are not righteous so that they would know that they need a righteousness that doesn't come from them. The Old Testament tabernacle was not, in fact, the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. When Solomon built the ornate temple that replaced the earthly tab- the, the tent, he said in 1 Kings 8.27, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. How much less this house which I have built. See, Solomon got, he got the fact that the temple, like the tabernacle, was a picture. It was a pointer to the real dwelling place of God that, by the way, is going to come to earth. The Old Testament tabernacle was designed by God from the very beginning (laughs) to put a spotlight on how utterly unqualified, it's a lot worse than that, how utterly disqualified the people were to draw near to their holy God. The Old Testament sacrifices were not given to make men clean in the eyes of God. They were given to remind us over and over and over again that we are not clean in the eyes of God. 
that we need Him to provide a covering for our sin. And we can't provide it ourselves. A reminder that our sin problem is continually unresolved. But every day at the entrance to the tabernacle, the priests were required to offer up a continual burnt offering. That means they, they stoke the fires of that offering in the morning and they stoke the fires of that offering at night and the fire was never to go out and it was a continual reminder at the entrance to the, t- to the tabernacle that the sin problem wasn't resolved. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to figure out that if the sacrifice had to be offered continually in order for the people to come anywhere near the glory of God, the sin problem was not resolved. And in the same way, the Old Testament priests were not supposed to be able to smooth the way of access to God. They were supposed to be proof that that way of access was terribly, grievously hindered by sin. Not only the sin of the people, but the sin of the priests. Everything about the priesthood under the law of Moses cried out for the desperate need of a priest who actually could mediate a way for the people to draw near to God without hindrance, without obstruction, without obstacles. To come right into the throne room of God. All of those Parts and pieces of the Old Testament system of worship were pointers, pictures of something infinitely greater. They were insufficient and inadequate by design because they were never meant to be the solution to man's sin problem. They were meant to point to the solution to man's sin problem. The one and only solution. And his name is Jesus. There's only one priest who ever fulfilled the priestly assignment and he fulfilled it in perfection. I'm going to talk for a minute about Melchizedek, who is a, a priesthood of one. And this is a fascinating thing, but it's easy to get lost in it, but I think it's a lot more straightforward than it looks at first. Only a handful of Old Testament passages make a direct reference to the coming perfect priest who would overcome the failure of the priesthood in the Old Covenant. One of those references is in Psalm 110. But before we get to that psalm, we have to know its precursor, what something in that psalm came from. We need to go back about a thousand years before that psalm was written. In Genesis 14, God granted Abraham a great military victory over the kings of four city-states who had taken his nephew Lot and his family and his whole city into captivity. After Abraham's victory... The king of the liberated city came out to meet with Abraham and another man came out to meet with Abraham. Here is everything that Genesis 14 says about Abraham's encounter with this other man. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Now when in reference to the establishment of the priesthood did this happen? About 500 years before. Okay? He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all of the spoils of the battle. 
Now just real quick, if you have some time to kill after this, flip through the Old Testament and check out how many times a priest is explicitly named without any mention of the name of his father. Have fun with that. Bear in mind again that long before, 500 years before God instituted the Levitical priesthood, this event happened. The only other Old Testament reference to Melchizedek shows up in a decidedly messianic psalm, Psalm 110. And even though, guys, even though that psalm is only seven verses long, it is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. And the reason is because it's all about Jesus. And the apostles knew that. And Jesus knew that. Psalm 110 was written by King David a thousand years before Christ came and about a thousand years after Melchizedek first showed up. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is the single most frequently quoted verse in the Psalms in the New Testament. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now so far, doesn't it kind of sound like this is a, this is being addressed to a coming king who's going to rule and overcome his enemies? Yes. The answer is yes. That's what it sounds like. And then comes verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. So we have a king, a conquering king, who's also a priest. Forever. And by the way, he's a king forever. Read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6-8. Many other passages. Now those verses are loaded, but I want to point out just a couple of things. First, this is talking about someone other than David. David was never called a priest. This passage is rightly and almost universally recognized by Jewish rabbis and scholars as a direct prophecy of the long-promised Messiah for whom they are still waiting. The conquering king in the line of David who will rule over his enemies, shatter kings and kingdoms, and judge among the nations, just as many, many other messianic prophecies in the Old Testament foretell. But in verse 4, the conquering king, who is the focus of this psalm, is declared by Yahweh to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Priest and king in one person. Unheard of in the Old Testament. All of the priests were from the tribe of Levi. They were called to be priests. They were the priestly tribe. None of the kings were Levites. They couldn't be priests because they were accountable to the priests. Read Deuteronomy 17. The kings were accountable to the priests as the representatives of God. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews fills in this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus Beautifully. In fact, we don't have anywhere near enough time to work through all that he says about that connection, but you'll find most of it in Hebrews chapter 7. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. The writer of Hebrews points out something very interesting from the Hebrew 
of, uh, regarding Melchizedek's name. He says, Melchizedek, king of, king of Salem, you've heard the word shalom. Salem, Salem is a version of that word. Melchizedek is from the word Melech, king, and Sadok, righteousness, king of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness, king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Whoa. He's not king of a city. He's not king of a city-state. He's not king of a country. He's king of righteousness and king of peace. Who are we talking about here? It's quite a name for a priest who shows up out of nowhere in one passage about Abraham and isn't mentioned again until about a thousand years later in a psalm by King David about Messiah, the long-promised king of kings. Roughly another thousand years after King David, the writer of Hebrews says of this same Melchizedek, He is without father and mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, He abides a priest forever. Who are we talking about here? He's a king forever. He's a priest forever. He had no beginning, no end, no father, no mother. A few verses later, the writer says about the tithe that Abraham gave to Melchizedek. says, the one whose genealogy is not traced from the sons of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. The promises were given to Abraham. And then he says, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. He's saying this man, Melchizedek, was greater than Abraham. And here's the kicker, verse 8. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. See, the writer of Hebrews says he's not a mortal man. Melchizedek was not a mortal man. I believe rather strongly that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Just like the man who came into the camp of Abraham four chapters later in Genesis 18. See, Jesus has been around forever. There are only two times in the Old Testament that a man is called both king and priest. The first was Melchizedek. The second is the high priest prophesied in Zechariah chapter 3 and Zechariah chapter 6. And he's the high priest who puts an end to sin. I won't read those passages, but I'll let you read them. God, in Zechariah 3, God promised that a priest was coming who would cleanse the land of all sin in a single day. The very land to which he promised he is one day going to actually come and actually dwell together with his people. Zechariah is full of that promise. In Zechariah 6, the very same coming priest whose name is Branch in both passages is going to be crowned as king. He will reign as king. He will spread God's temple, the dwelling place place of God over the whole earth. The perfect high priest who will reign as king over the whole earth is Jesus. The priests under the old covenant were unworthy mediators offering insufficient sacrifices. But Jesus, the long-promised Christ, does perfectly everything that the priests taken from among sinful men could never do. He is perfect God and perfect man. He is the sinless mediator and the pure and perfect sacrifice, which is what we talked about in the worship this morning.
for the little bit that remains, I'm going to let the writer of the book of Hebrews make the case for everything that I've just said. He talks about the Old Testament to make the case about the perfect priest. That he is the sinless mediator and the perfect sacrifice. I'm just going to read these passages without comment. I'm hopeful that you'll be listening carefully with all that we've already seen in mind. Because if you are, if you read these with those things in mind, I promise you will see them in the passages. This is some of the clearest, clearest declarations about fulfilled prophecy by Jesus in the whole Bible. And there's many clear declarations. This is just marvelous stuff. I'm going to read the passages, then I'm going to close in prayer because there's no way I can improve on this case that the writer of Hebrews makes. My very strong suggestion to you is that you take some time this week after this morning and read these passages again and ponder ponder what God has revealed to us. Hebrews 5, verses 1-3. through 3, We read that already, but I'm going to read it again. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, the priest taken from among men, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. That's us, guys. Since he himself is also beset with weakness, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so for himself. Hebrews 7, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, and this is right after the Melchizedek passage, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Hebrews 9. There's a whole lot in Hebrews 9 and 10 that I'm not going to show you, but you can read it later. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, you got that? When He appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. A little later, Hebrews 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. You see how he's repeating that? But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have need, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. <laughs> but once, 
Now, at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed to men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await Him. Hebrews 10, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. You see this pattern? The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have co- had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, listen guys, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. By this will... We have been sanctified, that means set apart, made holy, given up to God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see the repetition? (laughs) But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Just one. Since therefore, brethren, (laughs) please listen to this last paragraph. This is it. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence. Let me start over. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? It is the day, beloved when our priest makes us to stand in the very presence of God forever. 
unhindered, in perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect love. Dear Father, these things are awesome beyond our words. And and we simply stand in awe and we look and we say, we say to you, we confess to you, Father, that that the testimony, your testimony to your Son in your word is miraculous, all of it. But the greatest miracle of all, miracle of all Father, is the, is the incarnation of the one who is God, of very God, who came from heaven to earth to be the perfect tabernacle, Emmanuel, the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people, the perfect priest, sinless, the perfect sacrifice, pure. Father, He is our all in all, and we give Him all the glory. We, we say all these things to you in his precious name and for his sake. Amen.